President Biden has been eager to rejoin the deal that President Obama concluded with Iran's rulers in 2015, and from which President Trump withdrew three years later. The quarrel between advocates for and critics of the so-called Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action has been viewed as a disagreement over the best way to prevent the theocrats in Tehran from acquiring a nuclear weapons capability. Our two guests today see it differently. They've written a comprehensive analysis, arguing that Mr. Biden intends to both enrich and empower Iran's rulers, while simultaneously downgrading relations with Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arab states, Israel, and others with whom the U.S. has long had close and friendly relations. In other words, President Biden is attempting to establish a new order in the Middle East, one that regards the Islamic Republic of Iran as America's primary strategic partner in the region. They conclude also that President Biden has decided not to speak candidly about this dramatic change, which they call the realignment. As for the latest kinetic battle between Israel and Hamas, I suspect they see that as an inevitable consequence of the Biden tilt toward Tehran. We'll find out when we speak with Michael Duran, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and Tony Bedran, a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. We're glad you'll be with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Guys, I, I want to start with a little uh, shop talk, if you, if you will. The piece you've written for Tablet Magazine, which I got to say is really a fine publication, is almost 9,000 words long. That's like uh, 10 regular sized op-eds. You guys must have discussed this and your editors must have discussed this. Why did you decide to go so long? And why did your editors decide to, to let you go so long? Michael, you start. Uh, Cliff, we actually went short. We, we wanted to go much longer. We, our original draft was uh, 12,000 words and we had, to, we had to cut it back. They wanted us to cut it back to 8,000, but we, we, we fought with them. It was Tony, Tony, he, Tony did a lot of crying, a lot of <laughs> tears. We wanted it to be a definitive statement. So we were going all around the Middle East. We had a section on Iraq, for example. Uh, we had a, 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 de a much deeper discussion of the, um, uh, of the regional dialogues with Iran um, and, and so forth. Uh, and we, we did that because we originally started with, we were gonna write a, a, like a 1200 word piece. And we found it uh, very difficult to address the arguments that the administration was making about its policy because there were so many things that were interconnected. You know, in order to, in order to understand uh, the, 
um, the regional policy. You had to talk about the JCPOA. We had to unpack the, what I would say, uh, the lies or misdirection about the, the JCPOA. And so it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then we thought, you know, let's, let's just make it a comprehensive statement about their entire Middle East uh, strategy. Very good. Tony, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, Mike pretty much covered it. I mean, the thing is also, uh, Mike and I have been writing about this subject since the Obama second term, uh, even in the lead up to the JCPOA, as uh, in, from my vantage point, uh, Mike wrote about it. You'll remember there was a big article uh, on Iran and the negotiations in Mosaic magazine. And I was writing about it uh, almost on a weekly basis in relation to Syria, where I was seeing this, uh, the regional repercussions of this policy in tandem with the JCPOA negotiations as they were playing out in Syria and Lebanon and so on. And uh, so having this in mind as a background, um, when you try to, to explain it, you know, for us, there's something that there's a reference point in our mind, but it's not necessarily one that people are familiar with. So when, when you make a statement about, well, here's what they're doing, or here's this word that they're using to describe something, and this word doesn't come out of the blue, it has a history, and it was used to to mean something else or to deceive or misdirect and so on and so forth. So we had to pull all that information together so that the reader can, um, can be in the same, can have the same background that, that, we, that we had analyzed over many, many, many years. And uh, it was systematized. And obviously, in order to do so with various categories around the Middle East, like Mike said, Saudi Arabia, Israel, you know, the, 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 the nuclear file and so on and so forth, uh, domestic policy, uh, all of that had to be uh, systematized and the language that they use uh, clarified as well. Okay. Um, I'm, by the way, we're going to dig deep into the thesis of this in a second. And I also want to suggest that listeners do read the piece because there's no substitute for that, although I, it's going to be interesting to hear you talk about it. But I do want to, you know, as, as you were bringing this piece to press, as we used to say in the old days, um, missiles were being launched from Gaza uh, at Israeli towns and cities. And much of the media, they were saying that this latest battle stems either from a property dispute in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood of Jerusalem, or a dispute over access to uh, Al-Aqsa, which is Islam's uh, third holiest site in Jerusalem, which is also just above the Western Wall, the holiest place for the Jewish people. Am I correct to surmise that you see it differently, that you see it uh, not stemming from those incidents, whatever they were, but rather essentially as a consequence, indeed a foreseeable consequence, of the changes in policies from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? Is that how you see it, Michael? I absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I see the conflict today as a, a proxy conflict between uh, the United States and Iran, uh, between Israel and Iran and the United States and, and Iran. Obviously, it has all those other elements that you mentioned. There is a property dispute. It does, that, that does inflame local opinion uh, on, on both sides. There is the confluence of uh, of, um, uh, of Ramadan and Jerusalem Day, uh, the Israeli Jerusalem Day, the Iranian Jerusalem Day, all, all, all those things are, 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 not, um, um, are not inconsequential. 
uh, at all. Um, but from, from the American vantage point, the strategically significant factor is that the Iranians are supplying weaponry to Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the, and the Iranians are inciting them to use this weaponry to attack the uh, uh, Israeli civilians at this, at this time. And that, but the, one of the things that Tony and I tried to do in the piece is to uh, put together for the reader the, a, a different way of understanding the relationship between the great power contest or the, 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 the contest between the states in the Middle East and these local conflicts. The, the, the realignment, one of the theses of the realignment, uh, uh, as I think we, we discussed, or maybe we didn't actually in the, in the final draft go deeply into the texts of, of, of Rob Malley and Jake Sullivan. I can't remember what finally made it into the article and didn't, but they, they have a different thesis. I mean, their, their thesis is that these local conflicts are local conflicts and uh, the United States gets sucked into them because the uh, local actors, I mean, the, the local allies of the United States, the Saudis, the Israelis, they pull the United States in to fight against Iran and that then pulls Iran in further. So it's uh, the Iranian-US uh, conflict is a consequence of the ambitions of our allies which we, uh, I think Tony and I think that that's absolutely ridiculous. But, um, and we pretty much said that in the, uh, um, in, in, in the article. But uh, I don't want to deny that there are these local things going on, but that's what the Iranians do. The Iranians come in and they, you know, they use the Houthis in Yemen. They use the, 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 the Shiite community in Lebanon. They try to use the Shiite community in, uh, in, in Iraq. They, they grab other... Uh, you know they're 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 uh, allied with Hamas and with the Palestinian Islamic Palestinian Islamic Jihad is a tool of theirs. I mean they basically created it. So uh, uh, these lo local actors present their agendas in a local in a in terms of local concerns. But the the Iranian concern is to destroy the American security system, and that's what we should be focused on. Tony, just picking up on that, let me just throw one one more thing. You know that I find interesting. This is not a defense of President Trump. It's, this is factual. But critics of President Trump warned that if he moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, uh, the region would blow up. That didn't happen. Critics of President Trump warned that if the United States uh, recognizes Israeli sovereignty in the Golan, uh, the region would blow up. Um, it didn't. Critics warned that the peace plan that was put together by Jared Kushner would cause the Middle East to blow up. It didn't. President Biden comes in and he reaches out to the Palestinians. He, he essentially apologizes to them for Trump's policies. He writes big checks to organizations like UNRWA, which is a welfare organization for refugees, Palestinian refugees and their millions of descendants. And having done all that, the region blows up. Well, again, this is not a defense. This is just to say that something that I think to, mo to most people would seem counterintuitive is going on here, that <laughs> when you that Biden comes out and reaches out and it ends up in a conflagration. Can you can you sort that out for us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the exact exactly the right framework to my mind. I mean, it, it's um, we discussed this as well in the article that uh, President Trump puts together the Abraham Accords framework, right? The Abraham Accords framework is a total repudiation of the 
second leg of Barack Obama's legacy. The first leg, obviously, the comprehensive one, is the realignment that we describe with Iran, right? Part of that, okay, which is, the, which is something that he did literally in his last hours in office, is to orchestrate uh, the American, uh, an American position that is akin or an adoption of the old Arab rejectionist line vis-a-vis -vis Israel and premise America's position toward Israel on the rejectionist line and the 1967 lines. And this is something that was, you know, and, and enshrine it in a Security Council resolution, just as he enshrined the JCPOA in a Security Council resolution as well. That means it has nothing to do with the will of the American people. And so uh, those things, uh, to my mind, are parallel. They're, they're, they're part of the same equation. Um, Th that means that the Golan Heights in that framework cannot be Israel's. Uh, Jerusalem has to be divided according to Arab, the Arab position of the 67 line. Um, and, and, and more importantly, it elevates the Palestinians to be at the center uh, uh, of, of regional dynamics. Now, of course, I don't necessarily believe that they believe that the Palestinians are at the center, but just like Arab rejectionist regimes did for decades, they use the Palestinians to spoil any peace agreements between Israel and the Arab states. That's what they did all throughout history. And what's interesting to see now is the logical continuation of Obama's adoption of the rejectionist view translate under Biden through with the same team, let's be clear, uh, into, uh, uh, into now also looking to sabotage the Abraham Accords through the Palestinians. It's remarkable, the, the, the parallel of how the behavior mirrors uh, uh, you know, a, a historic precedent that we've seen you know, when, with, with states like Syria, or Iran for that matter, of how they use the Palestinians to do these types of things. The Palestinians intuitively, when the administration comes in and releases, as you mentioned, millions of dollars to, to UNRWA and, and, and other Palestinian programs, uh, says very clearly that they have a distaste for the Abraham Accords. They don't even use the term, the Abraham Accords. They're, like, it's, it's really funny in a way. Um, they, um, uh, they tell Saudi Arabia, for instance, you are not to dialogue with Israel, you're to dialogue with Iran. Okay? And they, and they re-elevate the Palestinians and surround them with rhetoric about equal, equality with Israel. Like, equality not meaning that they shouldn't have equal rights, but, like, to put them on the same pedestal, right? You're elevating them back to the center. They, the Palestinians, they, they've been playing this game forever. They understood intuitively what that means, and they understood that they're back in center stage. And the way the behavior plays out is through, uh, to, to, to sort of leverage this attention, is through this type of, uh, of violence. Michael, there's one other uh, spark here that I want you to address, and that is the Palestinian elections that did not happen. And they didn't happen, because, I think, because the President uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority thought at the end of the day, if he actually had elections, he hasn't had elections in like 16 years, if he had elections, Fatah would win, so he decided not to do that. Someone else would say that, okay, so then he ratchets up pressure against Israel to reestablish his bona fides as anti-Israel, Hamas has to compete. And in a way, this, this conflict that we're seeing underway right now, that is the way Palestinian elections 
That's the form they now take. Hamas is showing, well, you think you're tough because you're saying uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque is under threat from uh, bloodthirsty Israelis. We'll send missiles into Israel and we'll show you we're tougher and that this is uh, this is politics by other means in, in, in a certain way. I, I certainly think so. Uh, uh, there's a there's definitely in in this conflict. There's definitely a um, Hamas Fatah rivalry, um, and uh, particularly an effort by Hamas to establish itself as the dominant player in the. Um, you know, Hamas's aspiration. Um, I think it's 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 greatest near term aspiration is to become. Uh, the dominant element in the in the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, and that's what it has always I, I, it has always wanted to supplant Fatah and become uh, the representative of the um, the the the, the um, privileged representative of the Palestinians. So uh, they're definitely pursuing that uh, goal in this. Um, they're also. Hamas, together with the Iranians, they're they're also, as Tony was saying, uh, destroying the Abraham Accords. I mean, they're um, they are putting a tremendous amount of uh, pressure on the uh, the the signatories to the Abraham Accords and on the Saudis, who are the kind of silent partners in the Abraham Accords. The UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan are all very close to Saudi Arabia. They would not have made this move toward Israel if the Saudis hadn't supported it quietly. That was the, the next move in the game. Uh, um, what the Biden administration should have done to take the, to take the accords to their, to their next level would be to work on uh, uh, Israeli-Saudi rapprochement and, and, and to create a, a stronger block. Um, and that block also includes, by the way, the Egyptians and the, and the Jordanians. Uh, uh, and uh, um, instead, what the what the Biden administration did is it 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 sent a signal. To, Tony mentioned, you know, it, it's it, this even-handed aspect and of with the, it, between the Israelis and the Palestinians and putting the Palestinians back in 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 center stage. But what we show in the article is that that's part of a of a larger uh, approach to. Uh, Iran by the administration. The administration has is privileging Iran's positions, um, not just uh, in in uh, among the Palestinians, but also or um, creating an op opportunity for Iran or privileging its position, not just among the Palestinians, but also in uh, in Yemen, uh, in Iraq, and in and in, in Syria, also Le Lebanon. I mean, we've already privileged their position in Lebanon, um, so. They're looking to move away from a traditional containment policy, the Biden administration is, and instead form a kind of partnership in stabilizing the, the Middle East with the Iranians. And they don't admit this. You know, I, I was thinking, uh, we didn't mention uh, UN Resolution 2334, which Tony just alluded to, the one that, um, that uh, uh, Obama kicked the Israelis with as he left office in 2016. Uh, but it, 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 we, we could have mentioned it because it fits a pattern that we discuss in the article, which is of uh, dishonesty and misdirection, uh, because uh, um, the United States orchestrated 2334, uh, but uh, it 
put others like New Zealand in, in, in the forefront. They're the ones who pushed it through the UN. And when it came to the vote, the United States abstained, which allows, which allows uh, Obama and his supporters to say, you know, when people like uh, uh, Tony and I say, uh, Obama kicked Israel as he left, then all these guys can gaslight us and say, no, the United States, you know, was just responding to the will of the international community. And we, you know, we actually, actually, we abstained on that one. Uh, yeah, as if the United States is not a great power, the greatest power on earth, and it makes these things happen or doesn't, uh, you know, or stops them. And most listeners will know this, but I want to be clear in case some do not, that what 2334 essentially did, you correct me if I'm wrong, is to say that Israelis and Jews have no rights even to the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, no rights even to the, 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 the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, the holiest site in Judaism for thousands of years. If they have no right there, then what right do they have really anywhere in the country? That easily leads to a group like Human Rights Watch saying, as they did recently, Israel is an apartheid country. If it's an apartheid country, apartheid deserves to be abolished. So an apartheid regime deserves to be abolished by almost any means possible. That means that Hamas has every legitimacy to go ahead and pound Israel with missiles. You can say, some would say, well, but they're doing it against civilians. And Hamas's defenders would say, well, they don't have a lot of precision guided missiles, so what do you want them to do? In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that there's sort of a slippery slope and, and they're on snowboard sliding down it with, 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 with tremendous accuracy here coming from President Obama's view on the uh, on this whole whole subject, which and 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 reflect on this because I'm not sure which I suppose President Biden shares. Although you don't think of him, most people don't think of him as somebody of the far left, somebody who would uh, he his uh, to be fair, his administration has said we do not agree with Human Rights Watch that Israel is an apartheid regime. We don't we do not take that view. We take the view that Israel has the right to defend itself from Hamas rockets. But this whole concept, this realignment, as you call it, which puts the Islamic Republic of Iran at center stage and suggests that a, the Islamic Republic of Iran can be accommodated in a way that is beneficial for U.S. interests, even if that leads to the Islamic Republic of Iran getting nuclear weapons over the next decade or so, this is all fine from the U.S. point of view. Okay, I'm asking, I guess, does, do we think Biden believes in this? Do we think that Obama has whispered this in his ear and he said essentially, yes, sir, I'll go ahead and complete your mission? Or is it other people that uh, that are part of the Biden administration that are, that are pushing this and convincing Biden that this is a strategy to pursue? I guess, Tony, you start on that. Well, uh, so I, I have two angles on this. Uh, the first it's stuff that we discussed, uh, to bring it back to our article, it's stuff that we discussed in our article in terms of strategies that they use. Because if you start from the, the premise that their end game here is that there is the United States and, and Iran as the privileged interlocutor, uh, and everything else they view as either a nuisance or a potential sabotage of this uh, uh, of this partnership, which means that includes Israel too. So then, the, then you have to devise strategies to contain not Iran, but your old allies. So they, we discuss, for instance, 
the, faint, the values faint, uh, that you start talking about U.S. values, and somehow our allies are not living up to our values, so we have to hit them in the head uh, with a club. Um, same thing with, with Israel. Somehow it's maltreatment, uh, mistreatment of the Palestine, Palestinians is against U.S. values, and we should hit it with the head, uh, in, in the head with a club. Uh, there is um, th what we call the bear hug tactic, which is you profess love and concern for Israel, for its soul, and as well as its security. And uh, we really, we will profess everything about how Israel has the right to defend itself when rockets are coming down on its cities. As we legitimize the missile bases from which these uh, missiles are being launched by Iran, whether in Syria, whether in Iraq, whether in Yemen, by, by uh, as Obama called them, recognizing them as Iranian equities. What does that mean, an equity? What is an equity? What is Iran's equity in Syria? What is Iran's interest in Syria? Syria is a logistical uh, uh, connector to Hezbollah in Lebanon for them to be able to smuggle weapons to, and a strategic depth for Hezbollah in the case of war with Israel. And now it has become also a secondary front on the Golan, uh, which, by the way, the Biden administration refuses to recognize sovereignty. They only speak of recognizing Israeli control over the Golan, not sovereignty. They haven't rescinded it yet, but clearly their position is pre-Trump recognition of sovereignty. So you have those tactics that they do. And the Palestinians are a very useful tool um, in, both in both regards that, that they can use uh, to distract and sort of keep the Israelis off kilter and off balance and in a corner that that's kind of what you should be worried about and that's the nature of our relationship and what you should be concerned with while we conduct our business with the Iranians. And then there's the secondary angle, a second angle, which is the domestic angle. The, there's a very strong, uh, the, the base of the Democratic Party uh, the progressive element in the Democratic Party in particular, these are not on the wane. These are on the rise. And their views on Israel are, uh, uh, are not positive. They dislike Israel. They don't like American, uh, the American association with Israel. You see them now. You see the, the various uh, protests in the country, the various Congress, uh, members of Congress, uh, from the Democratic Party's, uh, if you want to call it the progressive wing, and so on and so forth. And, and elements in the team, the, the Obama team, which are now in the Biden team on the official level, share very problematic views about Israel itself. So there is, there is that element as well that is the uh, domestic policy element that, is, uh, that now also is reflected in the foreign policy as well. I'm going to follow up on that with Michael. Before I do a, a quick question, if it can be quick, be, well, I've got you on this, Sonia, and while I think about it, so you've got over a 1,000 missiles as we speak that have been launched from Gaza over Israel. They probably have, uh, I've heard estimates, of about 30,000 more missiles in, in, that Hamas has in Gaza. But there are 150,000 or so missiles in Lebanon under the control of Hezbollah, including many more uh, precision-guided missiles, which can possibly overwhelm or... Or, or, or evade the Iron Dome system, both Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, and uh, Ayatollah Khamenei in Tehran need to be thinking, hmm, would it be useful 
for our goals to have Hezbollah join in the fray right now? Um, do you think, how are they, how, what's their, what, what, what's their thought process on this? Is it going to happen or should it, what's the percentage chance that it will? Yeah, I, I doubt that Hezbollah is going to join the fray at this moment. Also, let's remember, has, uh, Nasrallah has expressed deep satisfaction at the policy of the United States, uh, not just in terms of forcing Saudi Arabia into a dialogue with Iran, but also the idea that uh, uh, sanctions relief, uh, and, and not idea, the fact that sanctions relief is around the corner. And the policy more broadly, regionally, as it's coming from Washington, is extremely advantageous to them. It's, it's all moving in, in the direction that they want it to move. Now, Hezbollah can poke at Israel uh, short of uh, uh, an overt uh, involvement that opens the door, let's say, to a, a full-blown conflict. Now, this would be in keeping with precedent from, uh, from previous wars in Gaza, like in 2014, for example. Uh, it allows Hezbollah to poke while maintaining deniability, even as everyone knows, you know, who's responsible. And, but, but this then avoids a full-on conflagration. So, for instance, they can allow for uh, supposedly unknown groups or Palestinian factions or even mock uh, factions, meaning that they would do it and sort of attribute it to someone else, uh, to fire a couple of rockets, whether it's from Lebanon or southern Syria or, uh, you know, from the, from the northern front, basically. Uh, and in, in, in addition, so in, in, uh, as they do that, Hezbollah and Iran, while um, not deterring Israel from completing its military operations in Gaza necessarily, uh, it'll still send a reminder about the shape of a future war um, uh, a reminder to, to the Israelis that such a war will be a multi-front war uh, involving uh, Iran's uh, uh, bases both to the south of Israel as well as to its north. I, I want to make sure listeners understand that Israeli citizens who are Arab, Israeli Palestinians, if you will, they have, even during the Defadas, they have generally been quiet. They may, they may have sympathized with the Palestinians, but in a city like Haifa or Lod, um, these are cities where Arabs and Jews, Muslims and Jews, Israelis of all citizens of whatever religion or ethnic background get along, have gotten along reasonably well. Um, and yet now they've been incited to, into these fights at the same time. And it's also at a time when the Arab, uh, when you have a, an Arab politician who has risen as never before within Israeli society uh, Mansar Abbas is uh, is sort of a kingmaker because which party uh, he supports could change the, the what, what happens in the Knesset and the leadership, and all this is now being endangered. Now I don't think any of this is coincidence, comrade. I think this is very very purposeful. But let me get back to you on, on, on one thing, Michael, which you, you'll be good on the idea that. That I, I mean, do, do the Biden people believe that ideology doesn't matter? That when the Khomeinists who rule Iran say death to America and death to Israel, they don't really mean that. They just want a little more power, a little more respect. And if they're shown that, all will be well. That the, because the, is this sort of a realist view that it's all a matter of interests and ideologies should not be taken seriously? 
we certainly know that what Iran wants to do is be the controlling power. Well, it is in Lebanon. It pretty much is in Syria. It is becoming in Yemen through the Houthis, who are terrorists, who the Biden administration said, we'll make believe they're not terrorists. We'll just lift the designation without any change in behavior. And they've gone on to attack civilians with impunity and with alacrity. They're very happy not to be called terrorists while they engage in terrorism. I mean, can you explain any of that? So I, I, I think a, um, a good way to start, actually, is not with the Middle East. And it's with American domestic politics. Because I, I, I think that makes a lot of, the, um, a lot of their foreign policy thinking um, a lot easier to grasp. If you start from the assumption that the goal of these policies is to destroy the Trump coalition domestically or, 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 or to weaken it. Well, then it looks a lot different and it looks a lot, a lot more rational. Um, uh, uh, and I, I, as, a, as a foreign policy doctrine, and we, we went into some detail in the, um, in the article, uh, there's a lot that's wanting there. Um, if you have any kind of you know, background on Iran, um, and it's also quite striking that they can't tell the truth about what they're doing. Uh, they they hide all the, the extent to which they are getting out of the Iran containment business. They're hiding all the time. And they use rhetoric that suggests that they're still trying to contain Iran when they're clearly not. So if they're if they if they think that this is really as great as they as they pretend uh, or as they say it is in the Middle East, how come they have to hide it? But if you look at it domestically, the uh, they they're presenting a picture of the Middle East, which is a um, uh, totally affirms the progressive cosmology, um, which sees evangelical Christians, um, neoconservatives, uh, 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 traditional Republican, uh, supporters of a traditional Republican muscular foreign policy, uh, the, uh, all of those positions that they see as the war party. You know, the, if you talk to progressives, the cause of war in the world, the cause of conflict is the American right. That's the pro that's where conflict comes from. So how do we um, how do we prevent conflict? Well, we 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 defeat that uh, we defeat that coalition. Uh, the progressives, of course, hate um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, uh, they hate Mohammed bin Salman. Those are those are devils in their uh, in their cosmology. So the argument is that the American right, uh, combined with the Zionists in a, in American domestic politics. Um, uh, they are uh, uh, allying with, uh, with, with Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman to drive the United States into conflict and to have conflict with Iran, which, if it weren't for the aggressive American policy, wouldn't, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be belligerent. That's, the, that's their argument that the, in, 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 in a nutshell. And as if you say, okay, Joe Biden won by 44,000 votes distributed across three states, an extremely razor-thin margin, uh, and his number one goal is to destroy Trumpism, um, then you want to erase the Abraham Accords. You want to, the, the, one, the greatest thing that Trump did in foreign policy was in the Middle East. You want to erase that legacy forever, and then you want to, um, you want to demonize 
uh, his, uh, his followers in, in domestic politics. This is a great tool for that. So wonderful, it's a great hammer to bash away um, at, um, at all of those things. Now, where I think they miscalculate um, badly from their own point of view, I'm not talking about uh, from their own point of view, is that I, they, I, I think they miscalculate. We're gonna have to wait and see. I don't think that they realized that they were gonna get the, um, the kind of violence that they've gotten so quickly. I think they expected when they told the Iranians that they wanted to go back to the JCPOA, I think they thought the Iranians would run back to the JCPOA. I think they thought that the Iranians would reduce the, the, the tension in Iraq. And I think they, uh, they, they, when they lifted the designation from the Houthis, they thought the Iranians would also the, uh, moderate the Houthis in, uh, in Yemen. I doubt they even expected that the Iranians would make a push through Hamas at the, um, uh, uh, at the Israelis. Now, fortunately for them, uh, a lot of, most of the people commentating on the Middle East in America and a lot of the people following the Middle East in, uh, in America don't see it the way Tony and I uh, see it. And so they don't necessarily make, draw a connection between the Iraqi theater, the, the Palestinian theater, the Yemeni theater, um, and so forth. And they don't read the region as a contest or a, a dialogue, however you want to put it, between the United States and, um, and Iran. So they're fortunate in that respect, but enough people are, and enough people are asking the question that you started with, which is how come Trump had a quiet Middle East and Biden who comes in with the supposedly better policy gets a big explosion all across the, um, uh, um, all across the region. And more than that, what this violence in, uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians is doing is it's bringing out at, to the forefront in the Democratic Party, the AOC, um, uh, Ilhan Omar, and uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, element, and it bringing it to the forefront. They're not just bringing Hamas to the forefront in, uh, uh, on the ground in the Middle East, they're bringing they're bringing Ilhan Omar to the to uh, uh, to the forefront, and I don't believe that the American people want a Democratic Party led by Ilhan Omar. But what it's got right now is a is a foreign policy, is a Middle East policy that is Ilhan Omar's Middle East policy, or something very close to it. And so that's a problem for them, I believe. Tony, getting close to the end here, but let me ask you this question: People who follow the news at all know that. Tony Blinken is Biden's new Secretary of State. Jake Sullivan is the new National Security Advisor. Uh, I think both are regarded um, as moderates, as sensible kinds of guys. Uh, they've hired Robert Malley to be their Iran envoy in this. Um, maybe tell us a little more about him because people might be surprised to learn he he is rather different from Blinken and Sullivan in his views, or so we would have led to believe. Well, that's actually a great question, because that is very much at the center of our article. Um, Mike mentioned earlier the uh, Robert Malley foreign policy article from 2019, which we discuss uh, in, in our piece, uh, which can be really viewed uh, as a systematization of the Obama doctrine. Uh, the Obama doctrine as it played out during the Obama years and what he described as the sort of suspended experiment that needed to be brought to completion and what, what should happen when the Democrats take power again. So remember, this is 2019. Um, 
this, these, these are not Robert Malley's thoughts. This is Obama's program that Robert Malley, as being sort of the closest in terms of uh, ideological thinking, uh, to my mind, to Obama, is, um, was the most capable person to systematize it and to present it as a template for all democratic, as a, as a platform for the Democratic Party. Uh, fast forward to the second foreign policy article that we discuss in our piece, uh, foreign uh, affairs, I'm sorry, not foreign policy, foreign affairs article that was discussed in our piece, uh, in May 2020, I think it was, by uh, uh, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan uh, takes the Mali template and now presents it as Biden, uh, candidate Biden's program. If you actually hold up the Mali piece and the Sullivan piece, other than maybe uh, tone, or you know, there in substance, in terms of substance, there's no difference. It is the exact same thing. Everything that Mali, if you want, it's kind of like a relay. Whatever Mali said, you know, this is what the Obama doctrine is and that got suspended. Now Jake Sullivan takes it uh, in, in, in a quote-unquote centrist tone and says, here's the program that we're going to take to implement this doctrine moving forward. Uh, I, I, really I, mean, I really invite listeners to not just read our piece, but to take the time Pull up the Mali piece, pull up the Sullivan piece, and read them carefully, uh, and you will see that this is uh, that this is actually there is there is no distinction uh, in the two. And Mali being in this position as the special envoy to Iran is again because he is the guy who holds the Obama doctrine, who understands it, who articulates it most clearly, uh, is is basically there to see it through the finish line. What, what he described as something that was suspended halfway, he's going to drive it through the, through the finish line. But not in conflict. That's one of the key points that, that uh, uh, Mike and I make in the piece, that not in conflict with the uh, Biden advisors, but rather in total consensus with them. Michael, any final thoughts or essential points that people need to understand? I just uh, add on to what, what Tony just said there. I, um, one of the things that uh, Sullivan did in his uh, piece was uh, pretend that he was responding to um, uh, things he saw on the ground in the Middle East, you know, developments in the Middle East. The, the piece is titled "America's Opportunity." So there's been, oh, there, you know, there's we've we've seen we've seen what Trump did, and we see what's happening in the Middle East. Here's a here's a new idea. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't make reference to Obama and he doesn't make reference to Mali. So um, it, 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 he's presenting it like, I, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we you know, do the following, which ha actually just happens to be exactly what Obama was doing. Uh, but there's no recognition of that um, in the piece. And I, I think we need to be aware that this is what's going on. The, the job of Sullivan and the job of Blinken is to put a centrist Clintonian face on what is essentially a radical progressive policy. And, and they know that that's their job. They, they totally understand it. And they, their, their job is to put this centrist rhetoric around these uh, positions that are not centrist in, um, in any way. 
Um, unfortunately, it, you know, it, 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 they also, they understand it as a move in, in, um, as a way of splitting people in, on the right uh, because there's a great desire among um, Republican foreign policy uh, people uh, to go back to the foreign policy that we had uh, uh, in the Republican Party prior to Donald Trump. Um, they, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep longing, I think a very unhealthy one, um, uh, or may, it might be healthy in its uh, sentiment, but not healthy in what it, in way it manifests itself for, you know, to reconstitute the responsible center. Um, and so when, when, uh, uh, when Democrats like Blinken and, and Sullivan present themselves as the responsible center rhetorically, they automatically find that, uh, that, that, that a number of a significant, uh, uh, significant elements in the Republican Party gravitate toward them like metal filings to a magnet. Um, and and you, you find the same thing also with a lot of their humanitarian rhetoric. You know, the, the humanitarian rhetoric on Yemen, you can see a lot of senators respond to that, you know, because a lot of people in the Republican Party are uneasy about Saudi Arabia and so forth. And so there's a there's a there's a, a willingness to take this rhetoric about Saudi Arabia um, uh, uh, at face value and not look at the larger context in which they are making these arguments about uh, about Saudi Arabia and just to respond to the to the to, to the moral argument. So my final thought is I, I want I want the uh, you know, I want those senators in uh, those senators who are. Um, who are aligning themselves with a lot of these policies to stop and think about, do we really want a permanent, uh, a permanent Iranian base in Yemen and an Iran that is allied with, with China, which has a base in Djibouti just 20 miles from that permanent Iranian base in, um, in Yemen? None of this makes any sense from an American strategic point of view. And we ought to, as a, as, as a party, uh, we ought to be standing um, with a unified vision of what the alternative is. But we can't do that unless we first understand that, that the other side has a unified vision and it's very scary. Yeah, just the last, the last thought is just to follow up on that. This is a very important uh, couple of points is that uh, the part of the, the, the strategy on their part is also not just to um, divide the Republican establishment, uh, foreign policy establishment, uh, but also to divide the Republican Party's uh, representatives from their actual base, right? When you're targeting evangelicals through this, you know, through this type of policy, you are, div uh, you are div and, and presenting, you know, a, a popular uh, re uh, policy with the Republican base under Trump, which has made very important uh, uh, achievements like the Abraham Accords and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and a moral achievement also of defining enemies and friends and, and, and say that that's bad and get Republican representatives to back that, you're dividing them from their base and turning them effectively as an instrument of their warfare against their base. Uh, and two, also the, the, on the point that, that Mike made with, with China, to, uh, to, which is what Trump really was successful at, if you remember uh, after the Jamal Khashoggi affair uh, Trump issued a statement 
in defense of the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia, which, was, which people saw as very controversial at the time, or tone deaf or whatever. But if you read it, I really encourage your listeners to, 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 to read that statement. It's a perfect articulation of American foreign policy and why America has alliances in the Middle East. The prosperity that the order that America established over 70 years, the prosperity that it has afforded Americans, that this order now is being, uh, with American assistance, being overturned and handed over to a terrorist regime that is a satellite of China, which will end up controlling choke points that are essential. We, we just saw a gas shortage <laughs> in the United States. We saw supply and logistical supply lines failure uh, uh, during COVID. Imagine that world, okay, and what it means to America's prosperity and America's security. So this is not trivial. This is not something that goes on over there that has no, that has no uh, consequence on, on American lives. And that was part of the appeal uh, and, and the success of the Trump administration that these guys are trying now to destroy uh, in a domestic sense by playing it in a foreign policy play. Look, I'm going to close this out by, again, urging listeners to sit down in a comfortable chair, pour themselves an adult beverage, and read your article in Tablet Magazine, because if they do so, they will understand this situation in a way they have not up to now. Uh, this has been a great conversation to be continued. Thank you, Michael Duran. Thank you, Tony Badran. Thanks to all of you who are also joining in this conversation for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.